0: We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state
1: of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley. With me as always is Joe Quinn. Hi there. So, today we're speaking with a very special guest, uh, renowned political commentator and author Stephen Lendman. Now, I say renowned less because he's well known to the general public, which you know might be the case in the saner world, more so because his prolific efforts to speak truth to the power of Satan countless articles, TV appearances from him, pu- published in independent media, but also in international media like on RT, Press TV, and so on. Stephen Lentman is the author of four books, author or editor of four books, Flashpoint in Ukraine, How the U.S. Drive for Hegemony Risks World War Three. Banker Occupation, Waging Financial War on Humanity, How Wall Street Fleeces America, Privatized... Privatized banking, government collusion and class war, and finally the Iraq Quagmire, The Price of Imperial Arrogance. You'll find all of Stephen's articles, both archived and his current ones, along with links to where you can purchase his books, on his personal blog at sjlendman.blogspot.com. Stephen is a regular guest on independent radio news. He also hosts his own radio show up to three times a week on it's called the Progressive Radio News Hour. And it's on the Progressive Radio Network. Check it out. Stephen is a 2008 Project Censored winner and recipient in 2011 of the Mexican Journalist Club for International Journalism Award. A thoroughly deserved international recognition of his commitment to truthful journalism. So a big welcome to you, Stephen Lendman.
2: Well, Joe and Neil, it really is great to be on with you. I describe myself very simply as an aging guy who began writing and doing media work at age 70 10 years ago and I'm past age 80 now, and I'm still going strong at it. Not quite as swift as I was 10 years ago, and if I, if I manage to get, go another decade, I'm sure I will have slowed down considerably from where I am now.
3: I don't know about that, Stephen. You know, I mean, the way you're going now. I mean, I, I get your uh, your updates, uh, your articles that you send uh, uh, on email, and um, you're as prolific as you've always been. I don't see any signs slowing down. So, anyway, long may it continue. You know.
2: Well, I hope the good Lord has a number of good years left for me, and uh, lets me keep doing this. I really do love it. I look forward to getting up every day and doing this. It's my reason for getting out of bed in the morning. I literally look forward to spending my days writing and doing media work. It's it's become it's become the most important thing in my life.
3: Although, uh, can you truly say that you look forward to it with the things that are going on in the world these days, having to face yourself into all the well, what can we call the mess? Shenanigans, maybe. I,
2: I know exactly what you're saying. It, it, it's such horrors going on at home and abroad. And without any question, America is responsible for the great majority of it. The worst of what's going on is directly responsible because of America's imperial agenda. I don't know how I do it, but I manage to stay calm dealing with all I do. I don't take it to bed with me when I go to sleep. I don't I don't sleep easily. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very restless sleeper, but it's got nothing to do with my writing. I've always been a restless sleeper, wake up at night, take a while to get to sleep, and yet I manage to feel rested in the morning and I jump into it. If I didn't have this to do all day, I don't know what I would do. The idea of sitting around all day and watching television or doing things like that I think that would take years off my life. I think this has added years to my life.
3: Absolutely, but um, yeah. I mean, I think there's even some uh, quite a lot of medical research to show that uh, you know, as as people get older, and um, keeping the the brain stimulated with. Uh, uh you know with that kind of research that kind of thinking, and also exposing it to new ideas uh keeps the brain kind of plastic as they say you know and 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 stops I think many people who just go downhill uh mentally in in their later years are um it's because they've just given up on actually thinking and you know wondering and questioning you know.
2: Oh, there's no question about that. I believe in daily exercise. My body, I need to do it because if I didn't exercise my body, I wouldn't have the energy to do my writing. But you need to exercise your mind as well. Uh, you can do it in lots of different ways. Just, just anything that would interest anybody. If it's not world affairs, I have a wonderful primary physician and she says to me that she really doesn't, doesn't like watching the news because it's so depressing. And I can't, I can't disagree with that. So do something else. Well, of course, while you're working, Your profession is exercising your mind, you are diagnosing patients. If you're a doctor, in my case, I'm retired. I could either do this or I could go fishing or something, and I really don't want to go fishing or play golf or do those kinds of things. I prefer exercising my mind and concentrating on major world events and putting out information, important information. I really want to share with as many people as possible, hoping that they'll – become energized by this and want to share it with others. And maybe it's a way we can change things, Joe and Neil.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. Um, I just wanted to um, ask you, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that, um, that you kind of got into this area of kind of political analysis and looking at what's going on in the world from from that perspective at about 10 years ago when you were 70. And, and now you're be 81, do you say?
2: I'll be 81 in August.
3: Right, so ten years, so ten years puts us back in two thousand and five six or so, yeah, yeah two thousand and five, so what was it that i mean what maybe tell us a little bit what were you doing before that and what <laughs> and then what what caused you to suddenly uh wake up in this way, I suppose.
2: Well, that is the question I ask myself all the time. How did I ever get to do this? Well, here's part of the answer. I was always concerned with what's going on. I used to write long letters to people, mostly people I knew, but occasionally to somebody I didn't know. Getting into some of these world issues, I write articles about, and I wrote a letter to Noam Chomsky once, and he answered me. He wrote me. I didn't have a computer. The other part of getting me into writing was I never had a home computer until age 70, and my daughter convinced me to get one, and that's what changed my life. But before that, I once wrote a letter to Noam Chomsky, a very long letter going into the, a lot of the issues that he deals with and that I began dealing with when I began writing. And he wrote me back. I couldn't email him because it would have been a heck of a long email, but he wrote me a letter back, and, and, and in, very nice, in a very nice way, he I don't remember his exact words, but but he suggested maybe I'd be a little bit more brief <laughs> the next time. I, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't send him a letter. I sent him an article.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then you realize, okay, well, I've sent him an article, so I'll just keep going. I've got more to say. Well, Noam Chomsky is a great example of someone who just still still going. He's still out there, still appearing on TV as well.
2: Oh, he really is. He, I think he's in his mid-80s now, maybe even a little older. I remember Howard Zinn so well. I had I had him on my program once. I had Chomsky on my program once. Howard Zinn, I think, passed away when he was 86, and that was a number of years ago. Now he'd be into his 90s if he was alive. And I, I re, and that really hit me hard when he went, because he was one of the early ones who got me interested in what I was doing, following his writing, following Chomsky's writing. And other people, Edward Said, was another extraordinary man. I, I was never able to get him on my program because, because I wasn't writing and I didn't have a program when he died and I remember it in September 2003, an immense loss of all the people I wish I could have had on my program that I never did. He popped my list.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I can't agree with that uh, more. Um, so just getting back to uh, what was that what caused that turning point? Um uh, like we said it was two thousand five. Uh was there anything in particular that yeah. made you even write to Chomsky or if you know?
2: Well the letters were because I'm interested in what's going on in the world uh, Chomsky was one person who was not a personal friend who I, who I wrote to. I wrote to personal friends expressing my feelings and uh, and like-minded ones, people also concerned about what's going on in the world. But what got me writing accidentally was uh, I read a book by Norman Finkelstein. He's written a number of books. Uh, it was his latest at the time, 10 years ago. And I expressed my gratitude and appreciation for the things that he wrote and, uh, and, and discussing it in terms of a. Agreeing with major points that he made. And he, and he emailed me back and he asked me if he could post what I wrote. On his website, I was really amazed. I never expected anything like that, or even an answer. But of course, I I responded saying, "Oh, I'd be I'd be honored if you posted it on on your website." And then he asked me if 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 I if I could if I could post it on Amazon or someplace to get the word out about his book, so that maybe it would interest other people wanting to read it and buy the book. And uh, and the only way I could do that was I, I sent him a personal letter. I rewrote it. In short, book review form, and I got a few websites to post it for me. That lit my fire a tiny little bit, and the thing that really lit my fire was when uh, when um, the uh, uh, the hurricane. Oh my goodness! (laughs) The New Orleans hurricane struck in August uh, 2005. Right, Katrina. Katrina, of course. I couldn't think of the name of the hurricane. Katrina in two thousand five. And the aftermath of Katrina with with the ripping off of the black people of New Orleans and, and, and one congressman, I believe it was, I quoted saying, what what we couldn't do in our own nature did for us, got these people out of the communities, out of the areas that we wanted to develop for profit, for white people only, for making money, really. That's what they were saying, for white people, for, for making money. And, 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 and this angered me so much that I wrote an article about it, and I forget the exact title. It was so long ago. I wrote a number of articles about Katrina afterwards, but that was the first one. And I got a couple of prominent websites to post it for me, that lit my fire, that's what really lit my fire. The, the, the short book review of Finkelstein's book. A few websites, I can't even remember the names now, posted posted the article. But a couple of prominent ones posted my my Katrina article, the first one, and that lit my fire to 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 write more. At the time, I met Kathy Kelly for the first time. You know the great anti-war activist. She lives in Chicago, and I visited with, visited with her, made contact, and I visited with her where she lives, and I have a bad knee from. surgery years ago. I can't I can't take long walks, I can't stand on my feet for a long time. And I said, Kathy, I can't join you on your activism on my feet, but I really want to help in some way and she said to me, Rice. Quote unquote Right, and that lit my fire more and the first article I wrote because she had been in Iraq about two dozen times was about the war in Iraq, also in haiti she's done she 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 had a great interest in what's going on in Haiti and is still going on in haiti and the two of my early articles were on the Iraq war and on the situation in Haiti, and another one was on Venezuela
0: and now. Ten years later, your articles are all over the place. I mean, we've posted a lot of yours on Sotnet. Oh, Uh, I know. I I know. I mean, we can't give you enough adulation because you deserve it. But I'll tell you what is a great service um, for us as an independent news site. You you write so often on, on so many topics that we often feel like, okay, Steven's got it covered because you it could be there could be ten important things we want to talk about this week or to write about, but we just don't have the time or we've got other topics we need to delve into mm-hmm. simultaneously, and we can always be sure that Stephen has got his finger on the pulse on mm-hmm. major world issues, so yeah. a big uh, well, big I- thank I- you.
2: I have another advantage too because I'm retired. I don't have to go to work every day. So the one, I, 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 I can spend my time any way I wish. Again, I could go fishing or play golf or do something like that. Or I could write. And I discovered, I had no idea, because when I was back, I hadn't done any serious writing since the end of 1959, 59, 1959, when Eisenhower was still president, and I finished my, my, my graduate thesis at the Warden School, and I remember that so well, it was over Thanksgiving weekend, and then, then, the, then, then I, I, I did, I edited and did what my advisor told me me to do in the the weeks after that, which wasn't a great deal, but I remember the relief I had when everybody was home for Thanksgiving and the boarding house I lived in, I think I and one other person was there for the whole weekend, but I was so relieved because the place was quiet and I finished my master's thesis first draft, and that was the last serious writing I ever did and the only thing I did in, in my working life was write the very dull business reports to make wonderful reading if you want to get put to sleep very easily. I don't think I think you wouldn't need more than a half a page to 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 want to dose off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But
2: but from then until eight seventy I did no serious writing at all and never even imagined wanting to do it. And I recall back in school that the things I disliked most, exams number one, term papers number two. I hated it, but writing a term paper then was a real, real chore. No computers and the way you did them was you went through Rolodex cards in the library and then you went through the library stacks looking for source materials and that's what I did. And In college, I was very lucky. Because they let the undergrads go into the major library, the Widener Library at Harvard, and use the same facilities the doctoral candidates used with a little table. There was an improvised desk, so, so a doctoral candidate could be a little ways away from me doing his or her work, and I was there doing research for a term paper that I had to write. It was a wonderful service, and I hope the university has it the same way now. But that's the way you had to write a term paper then, which made it very, very arduous. And now kids have it easy because literally you've got it all in your desktop and you can do marvelous research. And if you want to go to the library and do more, you can do it, but you pretty much can do it online.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Steven. So let's, let's say, when Katrina started, you really, you know, got the, got the bit between your teeth in terms of writing and um you know, researching and exposing the kind of uh I suppose the, the the criminality, the government criminality and corporate criminality that's been going on. Um but since then, I mean, okay, maybe we could go back a few years before that to maybe nine eleven as that seminal kind of event that seemed to have started uh the ball rolling in a very particular direction. Um but since Katrina uh let's say since nine eleven, I mean what nowadays when we Back over the past 15 years, 14 years since 9/11, we kind of see that the world has radically changed, um, and not for the better. And it seems to have it seems to hinge on 9/11. Would you agree with that?
2: Oh, absolutely. 9/11 changed everything. Things were pretty awful before 9/11. I mean, I'm I remember World War II. I don't remember well because I was a boy and there was no television. And uh, when my dad was listening to the news in the evening, the only thing I wanted to listen to was Superman and Captain Midnight and Terry and the Pirates. So I didn't really keep tabs on stuff very very long. I, I, I gained a little more understanding when the war ended and I was 10 years old. But when I, when it began, I didn't even know it was in 1939. My God, I was I, I was just five years old. I had no idea what was going on. But a number of my family members who were in the war they all came back. Thankfully, my best friend lost his brother, and, the, and a neighbor of mine was, 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 a, was a concentration camp survivor, and I didn't appreciate all of that until I really matured a little bit more and began to realize the horrors going on in the world. But it seemed as though with each successive presidency, I would say the exception of Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was far from perfect, but he, but he entered office as a warrior, and he transformed himself into a peacemaker, and in my opinion, Union, that was the main reason why the CIA murdered him there's no question of uh-huh. state sponsored assassination yeah. i think there were a lot of reasons for, for 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 the powers to be to be very angry at jack kennedy so many reasons but the number one i think was the fact that he wanted he wants he wanted all us forces out of vietnam by the end of 1964 i believe by the 64 uh, I I think he began withdrawing, but he wanted them all out within about a year of of when he announced it, and I think that's what got him killed. So with the exception of Kennedy, I think we've gone downhill with each successive president being worse than the preceding one, and you could go back. uh, Truman certainly, no no Roosevelt. Uh, uh, Carter Carter is, is the best former president, but his presidency was certainly nothing wonderful, a supporter of the Khmer Rouge, stuff like that, so his presidency. Was anything but a but a glorious but a glorious four years in office. But then we had Reagan, and I think Clinton was worse than Reagan, and, and Bush too, was worse than, than than Clinton, and I think Obama is worse than Bush too. And I think whoever succeeds Obama <laughs> will be worse than him. And heaven help well, us. Hillary, not <laughs> Hillary Clinton.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, heaven help us is right. Or well, we it's going to get worse. Well, yeah. p- well, people have a choice in uh, in, in in 2016. Um, they can have a Bush or a Clinton again, take your pick i mean it's 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 a, it's kind of safe money in a certain sense you know they've uh, ruling dynasties well, I mean they know them right I mean they've been there before you it's oh. kind of like it's like oh, an old indeed. friend kind of thing you know
2: a line I used uh, in a couple of my, i i it i I used some years ago, and then I wrote an article about Jeb Bush, and I used it again, and I said Be- behind every bush there's a crime. <laughs> <laughs> So, I can't think of a one-liner about Hillary Clinton that way, but but, but, but she, she was she, she she was pretty nasty when she was simply the first lady. Of course, you remember Hillary Care, the idea of turning stuff over to the corporations. And then Obamacare put it in overdrive, and uh, uh-huh. but but she was she, she was she was she was nasty at the Rose Law Firm and the uh, and the assassination of, uh, of Foster. What was his first name?
3: Oh, that's...
2: Vince Foster, yeah. Vince Foster. Vince Foster. I think that I think that I, th- I think that was an assassination. Uh, not the way it yeah. was portrayed. Uh, he, he was he was too close to some of the dirty stuff that the Clintons mm-hmm. were involved in. So wh- whether whether it's Bill or whether it's Hillary, I call it I call them uh, the Clinton f- crime family for good reason. And uh, mm-hmm. and and Hillary, I mean I mean Bill Clinton was a, was a war god, waging war against Iraq, the, the war that was never called a war for the eight years of his presidency, intermittent bombings, the sanctions, that 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 that, that humanitarian. Uh, uh, Monitors of uh, uh, oil and food humanitarian administrators, um, Hans von Sponick, and uh, who was the other one? Uh, Dennis Halliday. Uh, uh, they both resigned, and Halliday said he no longer wanted to be part of committing genocide against the Iraqi people, and he defined mm-hmm. it as killing something like 500 Iraqi children every month. And this went on mm-hmm. year, month after month, year after year. So that was the war, that was the undeclared war against Iraq that Clinton waged. And of course, 1999, uh, for 78 days, the rape of Yugoslavia, plus all of the stuff that he did for Wall Street, handing them the of Glass-Steagall and uh, and and, uh, and uh, legitimizing derivatives and stuff like that, a NAFTA, uh, the Telecommunications Act that let, uh, let the big uh, media companies consolidate. You could go uh, at, at over one thing after another, and Clinton, Clinton's eight years was an abomination, and I think if Hillary becomes president, she'll be worse than Bill.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a downward trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we
3: have a question here from uh, from a listener. are uh, in the chat room, um, Stephen. It's a. I think it must be a newbie. Uh, where is the conflict between Islam and the West uh, Christianity slash Christianity going?
2: Well, the only war between the West and Islam is the war that the West invents. And the reason is because the West needs enemies to justify its imperial agenda. The West, mainly America, uh, pressuring the other countries to go along. When I speak of NATO, I often talk about U.S.-dominated NATO because America pays for 75% of the NATO budget, so it gets the other 27 members to go along with its imperial agenda. doesn't have to push very hard when it comes to Britain, push a little bit at times with France, not much, a little bit with Germany, not much, a little harder with some other countries, but basically what NATO policy is, is American policy. Back back at the end of the Cold War, uh, that was disastrous for America because America lost its room service enemy, so another one came up, and his name was Saddam Hussein, but at the same time, the war on Islam was developing, but once Saddam went... Uh, America needed to maintain the war, needed, needed to have enemies, and an easy enemy was became Islam and Muslims after 9-11. That made it very easy. Vilify Muslims, blame them for the 9-11 event. They had absolutely nothing to do with. Bin Laden had nothing to do with 9-11. Crazed Arabs, quote unquote, had nothing to do with 9-11. It, I, I wrote a number of times about 9-11, and an article I wrote, Last September, I called it the mother of all big lies. There's no question that America committed 9 11, I think possibly jointly with Israel's Messiah. Hmm.
3: It's, um, yeah, it's something that struck me um, within the past 10 years. I can't remember exactly when, but uh, as a little too coincidental that you had the Cold War uh, from the end of the Second World War up until 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and, and, During those years, during that Cold War, America had uh, an enemy uh, that it could use and did use, obviously. That it could uh, easily point to. Well, yeah, used to justify uh, invading other countries and overthrowing various governments here and there. It was basically a justification, a rationale for imperial expansion throughout the whole Cold War period. Then the Soviet Union uh, collapses, Russia kind of opens up, except Suddenly the boogeyman or the enemy effectively is gone. But right at that time, I mean, 1991 was the fall of uh, the Soviet Union, let's say. Um, in 93, less than two years later, um, you had the first World Trade Center terror attack. By yes. effectively, by Osama bin Laden or some affiliated group to Muslim terrorists, I mean, and from then on, it just seemed to me so obvious that they had someone uh, or it seemed to be far too coincidental put it that way that suddenly this new enemy would come along that the u s could use in exactly the same way they used the, the communist threat, which was an unending global war on Muslim terrorism wherever it lives. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, it was just unbelievable.
2: Frankly. Absolutely, you could call it 1993, and boy, do I remember that so well. You could call it a mini 9/11. It really was a very short-lived episode. The man who got blamed for it was a man was a blind sheikh by the name of uh, Sheikh Abdul Rahman, and uh, he was a man that that, that Lynn Stewart. Uh, defended with Ramsey Clark in his appeal because he was blamed for, for the event and he had nothing to do with it. And this was a man the CIA brought over to America from Egypt they, and they used him for their own interests for a while. And then when they didn't need him a, anymore, Egypt was very upset about him. Uh, he was very critical of the Egyptian government and uh, and uh, Mubarak, I guess, was still still uh, the head of the Egyptian government at that time. Yeah, he was he was head for 30 years. Before he went out a couple of years 9, 11, in, in, in 2011. So Mubarak was, was the boss of Egypt back then, but he was very critical of Egyptian policy, so that angered Egypt a great deal. So America turned on this guy, and they convicted him for the 1993 World, uh, World Trade Center bombing, which he had nothing to do with. And, and Ramsey Clark uh, enlisted Lynn Stewart to join him in the defense team. And I remember Lynn Stewart saying that she really was so busy with other cases that she didn't have any time to do this, but she said, How do you say this is a direct quote, How do you say no to Ramsey Clark? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well she yeah. couldn't. She had no idea. What it would mean for her and how it would change her life. Because then they went after her and they got her in prison for a few years. And then a year ago, at Christmas time, they finally released her on a medical issue. But they thought she was dying. She's still alive. I met her before when, when she when she knew she was going to prison. Uh, she came to Chicago. For a national lawyer's guild meeting, and I'm amazed they invited me to come downtown, and I did. I looked so forward to that, and I met her, and I had a chance before she mixed with the crowd and gave a little, a little, a little talk to the crowd. But everybody else would be around her. I sat myself where I could see the door in which she came in. I went right over and introduced myself and embraced her, and she knew who I was. I think we had some communication before that, and then I've had her on my program a couple of times, and then after. She got out of prison last summer, last... Um Either August or September, she told me she was coming to Chicago with her husband Ralph, and we got together then. But 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 she was expected to be dead last December, and she's still going. And I pray that the good doctors are able to keep her alive, because she went through so much. This glorious woman—they put her away because she was defending a guy that the government wanted to put in prison for the rest of his life, and, and they would have anyway, no matter no matter what she did. But they mm-hmm. decided to punish her for daring to defend this guy that's the way america operates
3: what did they put her what was she
2: charged with officially uh there's something called sam's um i forget exactly the way to explain that but it basically is uh explaining information relating to lawyers and clients publicly Something to that Mm -hmm. effect. So you have a conversation, a private conversation with your client, and then you discuss things, say, with the press. Everybody knew Lynn Stewart, and uh, she would get interviews, and, and, and and she talked about the case that she was on and what she was doing, and Ramsey Clark did exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Nobody laid a glove on Ramsey Clark. How could they? A former U.S. Attorney General. Well, I guess they could have if they wanted to, but they didn't. Then Lynn did exactly the same thing, and they went after her to punish her. I think what they wanted to do was silence her. I guess with Ramsey, I guess I guess they could have killed him. I don't know why they haven't done it. He may. I think he's lucky to be alive because he certainly is extremely outspoken and he has managed to survive all these years. People may forget he was Lyndon Johnson's uh, attorney general back in the 1960s, and he's still alive, and he's still going. I'm not certain how old he is, but he's got to be in his 80s by now, but he's still going strong, and just a wonderful man, but he he was never touched by what happened with defending the blind Sheikh, but Lynn, they went after her, and they put her in prison for about four years, irresponsibly, illegally. She never committed a crime, obviously. Lynn is the kind of woman you build statues for to honor, and, and America put her in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: just on the, I mean, people may not know this, but that 1993 World Trade Center bombing uh, is a, I mean, it it has gone down officially in official history. I mean, it's it's been accepted that or, or revealed that uh, that was effectively an FBI terror sting operation. sting operation where the FBI knew about this plan or plot and had been using an informant to liaise with these so-called terrorists uh, to um, to go and plant a bomb in, in the World Trade Center in 1993. But, and the, the plan was to substitute a, the real bomb with a fake bomb. But apparently, for some reason, the FBI decided not to go ahead with that plan and a real bomb was allowed to go on. But, I mean, this is from, uh, you know, the New York Times and other uh, so-called newspapers of record um, that that this is what happened. this was the FBI were knew exactly who these people were, knew what they were planning to do and what we've seen in recent years with so many, like, dozens and dozens of FBI terror plots or sting operations where they go they find some kind of very often intellectually challenged or naive Muslim guy sometimes not even Muslim and suggest to him or him and his friends that they go, that they want to blow up you know, the Sears Tower or or you know, some other government another government building and they um, and they take them through the process. They train them. They show them how to, you know, use a bomb. They give them money. They give them, uh, you know, pretty much everything they need. And then, in the moment that they're about to, where well, they're about to plant the bomb or detonate the bomb, it's a fake bomb, and they're arrested. And suddenly they've they've caught terrorists. They've thwarted I a mean, the major terror. They've mass. done this repeatedly over and over again. But it seems to me that the uh, that the, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing was exactly that. It was one, probably not the first FBI. Kind of sting or plot, but um certainly uh, it, it is one of those it's it's a, it was effectively largely a staged FBI operation to generate kind of grist for the terror mill to to create the impression or to create the reality almost of there being this dire terror Muslim terror threat to America.
2: Oh, there's no question about that. And another threat, too. I mean, it, it, the Muslims are the main target in terms, in terms of, of a group of people. But you remember, the, it was it 1995 and 1996? The Oklahoma City bombing? Uh, the other uh-huh. one under, under, under Clinton. And that was an FBI job. It was the FBI building in Oklahoma City that Timothy McVeigh had nothing to do with. It, it, it had nothing to do with a car bomb outside the building. The building was rigged. The building was, was rigged on the inside. And the explosion, it's been a long time since our Written about this, but the explosion was analyzed by a general at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, proving that the building was rigged on the inside with, with with powerful explosives that took out lots of buildings, did enormous damage over a wide area around the around the uh, the FBI Center, and uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and and uh, and uh, and and uh, I don't think McVeigh had anything to do with it, and, and, and the other guy Who's the other guy with McVeigh, uh, Terry Nichols. Nichols, yeah. I don't think they had anything to do with it, or if they did, they were set up, but again, it, it, it wasn't a car bomb outside the building that did all this damage and killed people. It was rigging the building with dynamite, but amazingly, a general at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base did a study on this and proved that this is exactly what happened. I forget what, whether he suggested who was responsible, but, but he did explain that it had nothing to do with a car bomb outside the building, and that was the official story.
0: Hmm. Well, where it gets weird is not so much that uh, McVeigh had absolutely no involvement to the case. Certainly, he wouldn't have been an orchestrator of or a planner of what happened. But he was clearly tied to it, simply because he was no. He was later shown uh, and documented to have been hanging around with certain militia types and patriot groups, and uh, well, we later found out that. Uh, McBay and probably Nichols as well uh, was ex-military I mean he not just military but you know specialist training I think with the Berets at some place up in Michigan and he had been basically posted as a regular military officer to join one of these Patriot well, the, groups. Exactly the, class- it's the classic case of where they get the involvement is to, to be able to show the public afterwards that look he's clearly involved in the case now, he wouldn't have gone into that knowing that he would be sold out, if you like. Well, it's a Lee Harvey
3: Oswald kind of situation exactly, yeah. where you have someone uh, with U.S. military ties who are given a covert operation to go in and target this specific group, and they think they're carrying out an operation, but there's another parallel or secret operation going on that involves them taking the rap for something. that's
2: exactly right. I think I think that's exactly right. I I, th- I think a lot of these incidents where individuals are called terrorists and the FBI foils the plots. I think in some cases you get angry people who might wanted to do something against the government and it made it easy for them to be recruited by stooges representing the FBI, but there were lots of other cases where people had no intention at all of doing any harm to anybody and somehow they got into a situation or were maneuvered into a situation where the FBI could claim they were planning to do this, that or something else and frame them for something they had nothing to do with and had no intention of doing. So I think you've got a combination of things that went on. But again, part of the fear-mongering campaign to scare the public to believe there are bad guys out there and the government needs to do these extreme things to keep the public safe from the bad guys. And the truth is that, that, that the government is the bad guy, not these other people.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um,
3: Stephen, the, I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking here in terms of, um, we talk a lot about uh, what we've been, just been talking about, really, about how the government is involved in some way or other with... Um, you know, some of the Muslim, worst crimes. Well, with... That sp- inevitably... Well, specifically with Muslim terrorism. They're called Muslim terrorism today. Okay. Uh, but my question is, uh, to, to you, Stephen, is what... To what extent is there a Muslim terror threat that is in any way, you know, is of, of any consequence uh, in the world today against the West, against America, whatever? I mean, because we, we don't like to be too black and white about this and say that it's all completely fabricated. Maybe we should be. I don't know. But um, do you know what I'm saying? I think it's it's that that they provide such a convincing argument to a lot of normal people because there's – Pretty hard evidence or seems to be hard evidence of there being an actual Muslim terror threat
2: I think the answer I think the answer is this. There are a lot of crazy people in the world, Muslims and non-Muslims. Look at the lunatic Jewish people running the state of Israel. Uh, they, 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 they're as dangerous as anybody I know anywhere in the world, but I agree with you. There are extremist, extremist Muslims causing enormous harm to enormous numbers of people. The issue is that America is looking for these types of people, recruiting them, and there was one article I wrote some months back about a Pakistani who was who was paid ahead to recruit Islamic state fighters to go to be trained at, at U.S. facilities either in Jordan or in Turkey or Qatar or Saudi Arabia and then to be shipped cross border into Syria to wage war against Assad. So America finds these people, recruits them, trains them, funds them, arms them, and then we complain about, about an Islamic threat. Well, it's an Islamic threat mainly created by America and it goes back at least the 1980s to the Mujahideen that America enlisted to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan and now you could call them today's Taliban or give them any name that you want. So America creates a monster and the monster comes back to bite everybody and I think that's what's going on. You've got the Taliban in in Afghanistan, you've got the Islamic State, you've got the, uh, the Nusra Front, you've got Al Qaeda and America uses these people both as enemies and allies for strategic reasons in different theaters and IS the Islamic State very definitely is the main American ally in Syria and in Iraq Mm -hmm. and maybe soon to arrive in Libya and and some of these elements are in Gaza right now small numbers
0: so they say I mean what I've noticed is uh, a broadening of the label of IS or ISIS to Maybe existing groups that are in countries as far apart as the Philippines and Morocco, and I mean, how easy is it in in this age of information disinformation to say so and so is IS Islamic State?
3: Well, the thing the thing about it, uh, the thing I, I find almost funny about IS is um, or ISIL or ISIS whatever you want to call it is um, that here you have a relatively small group. Uh, of Muslim kind of fighters, guerrilla soldiers, whatever. Um, and people don't realize that they're actually fighting against and holding their ground and of actual, actual, actual fact gaining ground on the combined, combined might of the Iraqi army, the Syrian army, uh, significant help from the Iranian military, and uh, the Lebanese Hezbollah. So there's four separate large... Armies—they're either giving that are fully engaged against ISIL, uh, or are giving logistical and, and heavy support against them. And yet, these peoples are somehow able to uh, gain ground against these forces, which is just—it seems very implausible to me. But then, when you look at the fact that just recently it was in the news that they uh, captured what it was—something like 500 or several hundred Humvees or something—U.S. Uh, military equipment, Humvees, and you know, anti-tank weapons, all this kind of stuff that the U.S. sold to the Iraqi army. Uh, and obviously, the U.S. made a lot of money off that. Uh, they just get out of there. The Iraqi army can't keep a hold on it, can't keep it under lock and key. ISIS walk in, grab it, and this is how they're able to to make ground, supposedly. And for me, that's just an amazing coincidence, you know, uh, because that obviously with ISIS as, as a threat and well-equipped in that way, the U.S. military then gets to sp- Well, U.S. corporations get to make more money by selling weapons to the U.S. military to go and bomb ISIL to whom the U.S. military effectively gifted the weapons that they're fighting against. I mean, it starts getting – I mean, I have this idea of a conspiracy theorist, but I think what's far more ridiculous and far more outlandish is these people who are effectively coincidence theorists who say that (laughs) – that all these things that I, these kind of things that I'm pointing out are just coincidences. These things just happened by accident. No one plans them. You know, ISIS just accidentally happened to get 500 U.S. military Humvees and anti-tank weapons, and the U.S. just had no. The U.S. not only did the U.S. have have, have no interest in that happening. They really didn't want that to happen. But somehow they're so incompetent, or it's just horrible coincidence happens over and over again, and. That for me is like a more ridiculous contention than a conspiracy theory about it, i.e. that it would have been in some way planned to happen that way.
2: Well, I think it was very, very definitely planned and, and, and you hear occasionally about, uh, even in the mainstream media, about airdrops of weapons that acc- yeah. accidentally fall yeah. into the hands of ISIS. Well, there's nothing accidental about that, uh, Neil and Joe, uh, This this is absolutely on purpose so that America is arming these fighters to fight against the Iraqis, to fight against the Syrians. I think the issue in, in Syria, I think, is pretty clear cut. America wants the Assad government replaced with a pro-Western one, and the issue in Iraq. I think America wants Iraq balkanized into a Kurdish north, a Baghdad center, and a Basra south. And I think this is exactly what Israel wants. So, that, so what's going on there? And as far as far as the fighting capacity of the of these groups, uh, I, I just can't imagine why the army of Iraq would be that motivated to want to go to war with anybody. I think the Syrian mm-hmm. army is a lot more motivated because they realize if if Syria is defeated and the country is turned into a caliphate, an extremist caliphate, then these people are are going to come looking for anybody associated with Assad to cut their throats, to kill them, to behead them, so they have an incentive to want to stay alive, to fight these people. I don't think the Iraqis have the same incentive, uh, but I could be wrong on that, and if they don't have it, maybe they'll get it sooner or later, but America is not so much helping the Iraqi army. America is helping the ISIS terrorists against the Iraqi army and the ISIS terrorists against the Syrian army. When you have all these bombings going on, you mean the vaunted American Air Force could not knock out a lot of these ISIS facilities and fighters or whatever? I don't think you can win a war with their power alone, but you sure can do an awful lot of damage, and America has not done that. It's bombed, it's bombed Syrian infrastructure, Iraqi infrastructure, it's killed civilians, this is the kind of stuff to going on that never gets reported in the major media
3: hmm. yeah I mean just for people to um, to get their heads around the idea that the US government would support you know bloodthirsty kind of terrorist types uh, to understand that and accept that as a reality all they have to do is look at official US history I mean I wrote an article recently uh And it was it just briefly mentioned two cases where this has happened in the past. One was Nicaragua, where the U.S. government Mm -hmm. uh, funded, trained and armed the Contras against effectively a democratically elected government, Sandinista government to overthrow that government. And, you know, tens of thousands of innocent civilians were slaughtered by these U.S. trained, funded and armed uh, Contras uh, and and that was stand that's that was then standard U.S. policy. They had no problem with it. The other example was in Indonesia, where they uh, basically supported the brutal dictator Suharto over the democratically elected Sukarno, because they didn't like his kind of leftish uh, leanings. He he wouldn't play ball the American way. So they they uh, staged a coup, f- financed and funded a coup and put this guy Suharto in, who's this brutal dictator, who over the two years after he he was uh, he staged the coup, up to one million people were killed by him, uh, him and his, his henchmen. And this was fully supported, and Suharto was at the time supported by the U.S. government publicly, and for the next 25 or 30 years while he was in power, they continued to support him. So there's no question that the U.S. government has done this as a, as a matter of policy. Uh, so why people have a problem with the idea... Uh, what they'd call a conspiracy theory of the U.S. government supporting uh, Muslim terrorists, you know, Al-Qaeda. I mean, it fits perfectly with with, uh, standard U.S. foreign policy over the past 60, 70 years.
2: Oh, there's no question about that. Absolutely, absolutely. the, the history that interests me most is the post-World War II era, but there's no question you could go back to Truman's war on Korea. The North didn't start the war. The South started the war. At the, at the, at the, uh, the orchestration, America orchestrated the war and got repeated provocations of South Korea against the North, and finally, when the North responded in a little bit of force, we had the Korean War that, 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 that turned the North really to rubble, where, where uh, the U.S. forces under MacArthur literally ran out of targets to bomb, because the whole bloody place was turned to rubble. I mean, that 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 was lawless aggression. And then, of course, we know what happened in Southeast Asia and so many other places.
3: Yeah. Um, just changing uh, tack here for a minute, we have another question on the uh, chat room. Um, will Putin risk a nuclear confrontation with the U.S. slash NATO?
2: I call Putin a dedicated peacemaker The last thing Putin wants is war. What he wants is peace and stability and there's not a shred of evidence that he's done anything in all his years in office to instigate war or want a war. The situation in Ukraine, there's no evidence whatsoever of Russian troops in Ukraine. There are Russian nationals who are not part of Russia's military who have crossed the border into Ukraine, but there are nationals from many countries that have gone to Ukraine fighting on both sides. The only thing you hear about, um, a, a non-existent, a little green men with one of the expressions used, Russians, Russian soldiers in uniforms without insignia, well, there's no evidence of this at all. And then once in a while, they come up with some supposed satellite footage that's fake footage that has nothing to do with what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, and if there was something real, it, it, it would be proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, but there's none of this. Uh, this just goes on and on and on. There is no country in the region that has done more for peace and stability than Putin and Sergey Lavrov. And if we had an honest world, they would win the Nobel Peace Prize, hands down. But of course, they don't have a chance because only war makers win, well, mostly war makers win the prize. Uh, the belligerent in Ukraine is is Obama. The U.S. administration, the coup in February 2014, uh, the the, the violence that preceded it. uh, Victoria Nuland, the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eastern European Affairs, admitted publicly that America spent five over five or over five billion dollars for regime change in Ukraine, and they got it. They ousted a rotten government, but democratically elected, and they installed Nazis to take its place, and that's what's going on in Ukraine right now. And the war in the southeast, the Donbass area, is orchestrated from Washington uh, using proxy Kiev forces to fight the war, and it's really been revved up in recent days.
3: Yeah, <coughs> absolutely. Uh, I think that's uh, the, the kind of long and the short of that, uh, of that situation in Ukraine. Um, one of the things that it reminds me of this, this kind of a question is um, – uh you know the us state department gives these regular press uh, briefings to journalists and uh okay. there's Jen Saki and Marie Harf and then there was a, but recently over the past uh, few months six months or so there was a us mil- uh, military guy i think or he might have been the navy i'm not sure oh, uh, but yeah. i think he tar- yeah. he's yeah. taken he's taken over now i think he's taken over as a, as this the spokesman at the state department for giving these briefings but he was asked a question by a journalist about um about <laughs> because they had said, the U.S. government had said that um, Russia was moving, was, was being aggressive towards its uh, kind of uh, Eastern European neighbors, you know, that it was, it was saber rattling with NATO and stuff. And he said, but isn't it true that, um, I mean, he, didn't, he said, well, it's, it's, I'm not even going to ask that it is it true. It is obviously true that NATO has expanded right up to Russia's border. So if there's any aggression, the journalist said that to him. The journalist yeah. said that to him. Isn't there? I mean, it's obvious that it's not about Russia moving westward. It's it, NATO has pushed right up to Russia's border and is planning to install missile batteries right on countries right on Russia's border. I mean, and the guy was like, I mean, it was just so funny though. He tried to kind of like engage in these mental gymnastics of how hard to explain away the fact that yeah, NATO has expanded right up to Russian border, Russia's border, and NATO is a military alliance. You know, um, so, yeah, I mean, how some people don't really see clearly what the situation is there and that Russia and Putin are only effectively defending themselves and protecting their, uh, their sphere of influence, which they're entitled to. But we note that recently, I think it was Biden, Vice President Biden said that America would not tolerate any other country in the world having a sphere of
0: influence.
2: Well I can believe that. I think all of all of US actions really uh, point in that direction. Uh Really, very irresponsible, continuous, repeated Russia bashing and Putin bashing. And the reason is because Russia is an important country in the world. Putin values the sovereign independence of every country. He believes no country should interfere in the internal affairs of another. He's absolutely for peace. He's against war. He's against America's imperial agenda. I mean, these are reasons why America bashes Putin. It's, it's very, very simple. Uh, they, want, they want a stooge in power, like Boris Yeltsin. Nelson in the 1990s, they just dream of getting a guy like that back running Russia again so American policy can be the dominating influence over Russian policy. Well, Russians love Putin with his approval rating. uh, The last time I saw it, it was 86%. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. And you don't hear anybody in the West saying, oh, it's it's fake. Nobody says that. I mean, I think uh, Russians really do love him. And I think the reason is because because he stands up with backbone against the aggressive policies of the West, and, 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 and he's very forthright in what he says. I, I, I think I, I, I've used the expression that he says what he means, and he means what he says, the exact opposite of a guy like Obama, who no matter what comes out of his mouth, you can be sure it's another one of his many big lies, and that's exactly what happens. So Putin is the punching bag right now in that part of the world. Uh, America wants its influence curved. Ideally, it wants regime change. That really as the ultimate game. Uh, there is no question that Putin will not start a war with the West. The, the, Putin himself said it. The idea that that, that anybody would think Russia w- would attack NATO is insane, and that was the word he used: insane. Indeed, he said There's that. No, no yeah. Sorry. No yeah, he said that, that recently. Yeah. He, he said that, and he, I just wrote an article and, and sent it out. Uh, and uh, and you, uh, you you got it just before, just before we went on air with uh, Joint Chiefs Chairman Martin Dempsey giving an interview to the Wall Street Journal and bashing Putin uh, uh, unjustifiably, irresponsibly, and at the same time, I see I look at Dempsey as less of a lunatic, not a not a lunatic, not a hothead like so many people in Washington, even though some of the top generals. That his uh, his subordinates are uh, these kind of people, uh, Breedlove, the NATO commander, and general Hodges, uh, the commander of european forces forget their, I forget his exact title, make, making outrageous statements about russia but but even Dempsey bashed Russia irresponsibly, and he knows he knows that Russia is a consummate peacemaker, not a war maker, but he follows the party line and he says these things and but the idea that Russia would initiate a nuclear war with America or anybody. Else, Else, the chances of that are absolutely zero but at the same time if russia is attacked it absolutely will defend itself with everything it has and i hope it never comes to that if it does we're talking about a nuclear war
3: yeah so, putin uh russia bashing or putin bashing is such a is the perfect way to describe it because i mean over the past year since ukraine i have just been repeatedly almost daily appalled by the ridiculous, childish, hysterical statements coming out of the Western media about Putin. I mean, some, a lot of it, maybe all of most of it, absolutely fabricated. I mean, one that sticks out is um, last year when MH17 uh, fell out of the sky, was shot down, whatever, over Ukraine. Oh, that yep. very, that very day, uh, British tabloid newspapers had massive. Black Bold headlines, one of them was others were similar to this, but one of them was really stuck in my mind was Putin killed my baby Now this was on the same day that the plane fell out of the sky when no one, not even God or well, maybe God but not could have known who, who or why or what happened to that plane but they i mean that 's an example of the egregious, deliberate, conscious uh, demonization of Russia, and Putin in particular, and with no basis whatsoever.
2: And and the most important thing everybody needs to ask is when something like this happens, what benefit could Russia possibly have? What benefit could the, for the freedom fighters in Donbass, the southeast of Ukraine? What benefit could they possibly get by shooting down a commercial airliner? And Even a moron could answer that question. No benefit whatsoever. If there's no benefit, there's, there's no crime committed by them, so who gets the benefit of this? America, huh? uh, the, the regime in Kiev, by, be, by blaming Russia, by blaming the Donbass freedom fighters. They're the ones who get the benefit, so they're the ones you should look to. It's the culprits behind the crime. And, of course, they are the culprits behind the crime.
0: Stephen, you mentioned that the situation there in southeast Ukraine recently flared up. What what exactly is going on? I mean, are we looking at the renewal of the civil war there in the same level as late last year?
2: Could very well be happening. I think the timing of of the flare up in the last few days was ahead of the G7 summit going on right now in Germany right. at this exclusive report, uh, resort. I, I think I think that's b- behind the timing of the of the recent flare up. We'll have to watch to see what happens when, when the when the summit ends, whether it cools down a little bit. Even though I believe that the plan is to escalate it and to go back to a full scale war again, but I think the motive behind doing it now was to was to, was to again use Putin as a punching bag, blaming him and, and the freedom fighters for escalating the fighting, which is exactly the opposite of the truth, to be sure that the sanctions against Russia would be extended at, at the summit, but but they didn't need to do this, because I think Europe would absolutely go along with extending the sanctions for another six months. So instead they're killing a lot of people to get something done, where they, ne- they didn't need to do this at all, but they're simply putting an exclamation point on the idea, as they would put it, that they need to maintain the sanctions against Russia, uh, aside from the fact that they're illegal, they really ought to be sanctioning themselves, because they're the guilty parties, not Russia, Russia should get the medals, and these people should be put in prison for the crimes that they committed, including the ones complicit with America and Kiev, the key European countries, mainly Britain.
0: Absolutely. Do you, do you find, when you look, or from what you can remember, of Cold War era, uh, relative to what's going on today, it, it, does it strike you that there's, it's, it's the same pattern that back then Russia slash USSR was boogeyman. obviously the boo- boogeyman and the kind of overall strategic purpose of largely US foreign policy, let's call it NATO, um, was to isolate, contain, keep away Russia? Isn't it astonishing that? That's very much still the case or or, or that it was renewed? What, what do you think is going on here? Is, is it something that uh, is a kind of constant in world affairs?
2: Oh, I think that's very much what's going on. I, th- I think it began back in 1917 with the Russian Revolution where at one point uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson <laughs> Democrat Woodrow Wilson sent in uh, something like 6,000 Marines uh, in 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 one of the northern ports to fight against uh, uh, the Bolsheviks in in Russia. So America was fighting uh, what became the Soviet Union back in 1917 for a short period of time. And uh, then we have the Cold War. And At the end of the Cold War, there's information that that Churchill wanted to go to war with Russia and and attack them uh, probably with nuclear weapons while they were down. Of course, Russia was developing nuclear weapons, too. I don't know if they had any at the end of World War II in in summer 1945. They certainly had them a short time after that. But Churchill wanted to go to war and knock Russia out completely at the end of the Second World War. And it wasn't America and Britain that defeated Hitler in, in Europe. It was Russia. Russia defeated the Nazis and Russia paid with maybe 27 million lives or more and America certainly liberated France there's no question about that but Russia defeated Nazi Germany and if Hitler hadn't invaded Russia and I remember the day cuz I just mentioned it in an article on the 22nd of June in 1941 operation barbarossa if Hitler hadn't done that he might have won the war. He, he probably would have won the war because he sacrificed the lives of millions of valuable German soldiers fighting a feudal battle against Russia that had limited, limitless people plus weapons they could produce way, way deep into ter- the territory. And Hitler had no long range bombers to bomb way in the far east of Russia. And, and, uh, and America, I think, was arming Russia at the same time. So it was American weapons, the weapons Russia produced on its own, and Russian manpower. This endless millions, this tsunami of people and fighters to go after Nazi Germany, just grinding them down, wearing them down, knowing how to fight in winter under adverse conditions where the Nazis knew nothing about that, w- where they got stymied outside of Moscow if the winter months came in, and the Russians knew all about fighting in winter months. I think they got stuck in the mud before the winter months uh, came in, but if Hitler had not attacked uh, Soviet Russia, he probably would have won the war.
3: So, Given that, Stephen, um What's your take then on, because um, that is official history, although it's not taught so much in, in Western European uh, in schools and in, in history class, but given that effectively the Nazis would not have been be- beaten <clears throat> probably without Russia and Russia effectively defeated the Nazis, uh, what, I mean, recently you had the World War II commemorations in Moscow and the Western European and U.S. Uh, you know, presidents and prime ministers were conspicuously absent uh, from that celebration, and I mean, it seems it seems a bit uh,
0: impolite, to say the least.
2: It really shows uh, the true character of America, Neil and Joe where this important commemoration, and, and every, everybody, everybody who understands history realizes that if the Russians hadn't been involved, that the Nazi Germany never could have been defeated the way it was, that, that, that they literally they, they literally ground down the, the Nazi Wehrmacht and, and eliminated such a large portion of it to, to make Germans' defenses really, it, it got to be impossible against the Western forces coming in from, from Normandy through France, and then And then into Germany, but if it wasn't for the effort from Russia, uh, the war would have been an entirely different situation, and Obama doesn't have the courtesy, if you want to call it that, to show up for this important commemoration and thank Russia for what it did, but of course, given what's going on between U.S. and Russian relations, that that wouldn't happen, and I think uh, a leader like uh, Angela Merkel, who did not go to the commemoration but showed up the next day, uh, she was embarrassed, I'm sure, not to have been there. Because Russia liberated Germany, and the least that she could do would would be to show up in Russia for this important occasion and and thank uh, Putin for what uh, Russia did. And Putin's father was in the war. I think Putin was born after the war. Uh, thank so, Russia so why for what did they did?
3: Why didn't Merkel turn up then?
2: I think the pressure was put on her by, by Obama, by by America, not to show up. So she compromised. She skipped the commemoration on the 9th, and she showed up the next day. I think this is the way she did it. But she shouldn't have done that. She should have been there. She should have been there front and center, front and center, hmm. thanking Russia for what it did. That's what That's what a legitimate leader would do, but she didn't do that.
0: So, as
3: part of not going to that commemoration was well part of the propaganda war that's been ongoing against Russia to to sideline Russia and give it no opportunity to have any kind of positive international uh, light cast upon it. That seems to be a major part of the the West campaign against Russia to deny it that respectability essentially, uh, and 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 the awareness of Russia's respectability amongst Western populations.
2: Oh, indeed, and I quoted Merkel saying that uh, Russia should never be allowed back into the G-7 to become G-8 again until it gives up Crimea. Uh, Without explaining that Russia did not annex Crimea, the Crimeans voted in a referendum, internationally monitored, judged open, free, and fair, and something like 96 or 97 percent of the Crimeans, with about an 80 percent turnout, voted to rejoin Russia, and, and Putin merely accommodated their wishes. That's not an annexation. And in the Charter of the United Nations, it affirms that self-determination is a universal right. So all, all Putin did was obey the Charter of the United Nations. He did not annex Crimea, and it's not going back. Uh, a historic mistake was corrected. That's what happened when, when, when the returning of Crimea to, to Russia took place. A historic mistake was corrected. Correct.
3: Everybody knows that, but they won't say it. Right. They keep harping on about how Russia annexed Crimea and it has to get back, and this seems to be the main reason that they wage this campaign, this defamation campaign against Russia, calling it uh, an infiltrator, a violator of uh, the territorial integrity of other countries, etc. But I mean, it's nonsense. It's pure. It's pure BS, and it's provably BS when when people. Well, if, if you just simply say what you just said, which is that. Uh, Over 90% of the population of Crimea are ethnically Russian and wanted to be part of Russia, and they all voted that way. So how is that a violation of anything?
2: No, it's not a violation. It, it was an absolutely legal act. There was no illegality at all involved. And again, the, peop, the people bashing Russia in, in government in, in Western Europe and Washington, they know this, but they need reasons to bash Putin, so this is a convenient one. And if this one never had happened, they, again, they, they would simply use the one of uh, Russian troops uh, in uh, Ukraine fighting with the Ukrainians, supplying them with arms, helping them in their campaign, uh, where there's no proof whatsoever that any of this is happening, but there's plenty of proof to show that America is supporting uh, the Kiev regime and fighting the people in the southeast. And the only thing those people want is real democracy. They reject fascism, which everybody should reject. And the only thing they want is real democracy, but that's not what America wants. So they're called the bad guys, and the Kiev regime calls the war, naked aggression, an anti-terrorist operation, an ATO, anti-terrorist operation. Well, the terrorist are in uh, Kiev and in Washington, and the freedom fighters, the freedom-loving people, are in Donetsk and Lugansk, and everybody, everybody should support them.
3: Yeah, absolutely. On the on the Crimea thing, on the annexing, annexing of Crimea thing, the the hypocrisy uh, meter just uh, kind of blew through the the roof on that one as well, because in Kosovo. Uh, back in 2008, 2008, Kosovo declared independence unilaterally uh, yeah. from the rest of Serbia, and uh, that was that was exactly the same, uh, almost a mirror image of what happened in uh, in Crimea. And uh, the US and the EU more or less said, "Cool, we like that. Go ahead, thumbs up, no problem." But well, so it's well, one, one room right. for them and, and another for their, their enemies.
2: I forget forget the the sentiment in Kosovo wanting to do this, but I don't think it was anywhere near the overwhelming sentiment in Crimea to return to Russia. I have to check what what the figures were, but but maybe I, maybe two thirds of the population supported it. It was it, it was nothing like ninety five or six or ninety seven percent. So 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 really the Crime the Crimean situation was completely slam dunk, and 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 the Kosovo situation was merely a layup. that rolled around the rim, and it could have rolled out, but it rolled in.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it was basically yeah. the same idea.
0: Yeah. It's a topsy turvy world, you know. Everyone talks democracy. Everyone talks democracy, and yeah, but whenever you whenever you actually have a a rare and clear case of it, it's not allowed. It's not allowed. And what's worse is that the masses, the demos, don't ever get to see it as an actual expression of democracy, which they all, you know, aspire to and believe in and accept as a good value in itself. And when it actually happens, they're trained to hate it. It's just tragic.
2: Oh, absolutely. Maybe maybe we can wrap up this discussion by, by just saying things like uh, – uh, I'm almost 81 years old, I'll be 81 in August, and I've had a lot of good years behind me. If the worst of possible events happens, well, I could I have at least come this far, but I fear so much for young people who simply in America, especially where I live, it's the only country I really know about firsthand because it's my home, and they simply, it, it was far from a perfect place when I was growing up, anything but. I mean, I remember Islamophobia, I remember the vicious racism, I remember the endless wars, the terrible stuff that went on, the framing of people, the political prisoners, but it was nothing like what's going on today. And a kid like me from inner city Boston, from a lower middle class family, with nothing going for me at all, was able to get into two top schools, Harvard and the Warden School, when they were not only get in, but when they were affordable, where my Harvard freshman tuition for the full year was $600. And that's no exaggeration. And my My mother went evenings to get a degree, mostly at Harvard. It was it was an evening uh, course, an an evening uh, university extension course in Boston. It was it was about 95% courses at Harvard, where we took some of the same courses with the same professors for five dollars a course. And my mother and I graduated together in the same class at Harvard in June 1956. I think it was June 16th, so it's getting close to the anniversary, and, and, and she got her Harvard degree. My my tuition went up. It was 1000 bucks by senior year, a pittance compared to today, but my mother got a Harvard degree going evenings. Literally, for one hundred and seventy five dollars well there's no, i don't know what, i don't even know if the evening courses exist now but but there's nothing today like the way it was then, and in grad school, I forget what it cost me exactly. I had to pay by the semester hour rather, rather than by a full semester or a full year but but it, but it was dirt cheap compared to the way it was now, I was able to work and pay for ninety percent of my of my expenses and my tuition. I got a small amount of help from my father in grad school I did it all of myself plus something like a $200 loan that I took out that I easily repaid in my first year but the kids today they get entrapped in, in, in debts they can't repay they have a horrible situation going where you can come out with, with wonderful degrees with a wonderful education and you can't even find a job because they don't exist they've been exported offshore to other countries cheap labor so if you you want a rotten job, a rotten service job, paying poverty wages, you could have a PhD and maybe that's all you can get. If you teach, maybe you have a chance to do that, but if you want to do a lot of other things, you have an awful hard time. The doctors can do it, but even they don't have the same advantage that they had years ago with all of the red tape that they have to live through. Uh, Lawyers, I don't know what lawyers go through, but so many of of the well-trained professionals in America simply don't have the advantages that kids like like me had when when i was growing up in the 1940s beginning in the 1930s my kindergarten uh, kindergarten i think was the year that hitler invaded poland in 1939 september 1939 where i had, i had no idea what was going on but all through those years again I had advantages that kids don't have today, and that's all gone. America is a police state, the kids today, God only knows what they face going forward. So if I perish because somebody is foolish enough to start a nuclear war against Russia or against anybody else, and I must say, I don't, I don't expect it, but the possibility is frighteningly real. If that happens, well, so I'll go, but at least I've got all these good years behind me. But all of these young people in America and in other countries they'll die in vain they'll have done nothing because their lives will have been cut short by the lunatics in Washington that are making policies that conceivably could end up killing us all if we don't do something about this if we don't get angry enough to decide we're not going to take this and literally put our bodies on the line for changing it we may all end up very very sad losers
3: very well said Stephen Um, I think we're going to leave it there Uh, like, you, like you're suggesting, that's a good, good, excellent way to end it. Um, I just want to thank you for, for coming on to talk to us here. It's been great. You're, uh, you're a credit to Boston. and You're a champion of truth. Exactly. God bless you. And um, long may you continue.
2: Neil, I thank you so very kindly. If I had one wish that can't come true, it's that both my parents could have seen what I'm doing now. And sadly, they didn't live long enough to do it. I wish that could have been the case. I think they would have approved.
0: I think so. I think they're very proud of you. Well done, Stephen. Well, hopefully Yo, you, you come back on the show. some
3: other time. Oh, I'd love to
2: come, come back on. Okay. Thank you, you both prefer. so much.
3: You have a great day, Stephen.
2: Thanks. Bye now.
3: Bye-bye. Talk to you. Bye. So, that was Stephen Lentman. Uh, he really is <clears throat> one of a kind, really, because, I mean, at almost 81 years old, to be doing what he's doing and to be so lucid and clear, and to have things, yeah. uh, you know, kind of locked down in that way in, in terms of how he sees the situation. I mean, I, I, I can't think of, I don't know many 81-year-olds, admittedly, but <clears throat> I don't think there are many uh, uh, like him doing what he's doing and there should be more. Um, so I think it's time for a little change of tack, as we often do, almost always do on the show um i think it's time for yes there's the music you know what's coming you know what's coming when the music starts to play this is relic and his pop culture roundup for this week
0: take it away relic
1: well salutations everyone as i welcome you all aboard Another gargantuan episode of Relic's Pop Culture Roundup where we dissect the putrid corpse of celebrity culture and closely examine the twisted entrails of what barely passes for art and music in these final days of the lugubrious American empire. I'm sitting now in my little log cabin on the iceberg-clotted shores of Upper Lake Canada, where they say every snowflake is unlike any other. So unique, in fact, that I've spent the last 57 years naming each and every one of them. Ooh, look! Justin Timberlake and Joe the Plumber have just landed on my roof. Right next to Edie Amin and the entire Jackson Five. That should make for some interesting bedtime conversation. So, let's take a look at what the Hollywood Interlink has in store for us this week. The TMZ website is reporting that Richard Hilton, the grandson of multi-billionaire hotel magnate Conrad Hilton and father of blonde celebrity strumpet Paris Hilton is in trouble after a small-engine Cessna plane carrying 400 kilograms of cocaine and $1.5 million in cash was seized by customs agents from Mr. Hilton's private airstrip in Costa Rica. Though Richard and his wife Kathy were allegedly at the compound during the raid, it seems their daughter, Paris Hilton, was legally in the clear, as she was busy hosting a big party on the island of Ibiza at the time. Although, rumor has it that the partygoers were quite disappointed when the much-anticipated delivery of... 400 pounds of the newly confiscated wacky dust failed to arrive. (laughs) Like Paris, the eldest of four siblings, it's a little-known fact that the Hilton parents named all their children after famous world capitals where their most profitable hotels can be found. For example, there's her brother Minsk Hilton, her Latino half sister, Santiago Hilton. And then there's the youngest, who's also a little shy, the artist formerly known as Porto Prince Hilton. True story. Now, Paris Hilton is one of those most puerile of celebrities, you know, the kind with neither skill nor talent. People who are famous just for being famous. Wikipedia calls them celebutantes who inherit their fame through wealth and lifestyle and who offer no discernible value to the human race. Paris herself first gained public notoriety in 2003 when she simultaneously starred in the reality TV show The Simple Life and released a homemade sex tape video with her then-boyfriend Rick Saloman. She's most well-known for that infamous scene where she had to stick her entire arm up a cow's backside. However, in which one of these two videos this particular incident took place remains a mystery to me. In other news, Access Hollywood is reporting that Canada's own skater girl, Avril Lavigne, was ordered bedridden for five months after contracting Lyme disease. At first, Miss Lavigny thought her illness might be caused by the copious amounts of seven up and sprite that she drinks before every concert but her doctor said that that would have resulted in lemon-lime disease, which apparently is an entirely different disease altogether. The black eyeliner-wearing singer said that with the help of her family and her husband, musician Chad Kroeger, Averill is now reporting that she's recuperating and feeling much better. And I say Kudos to her for being so strong and upbeat in the face of such personal hardship. You know, it's a little-known fact that the rebellious Canadian pop idol spent a sum total of only five cents on her entire wedding. That way, I suppose, if things didn't quite work out with her new husband, she would never have to ask for her nickelback. In our last story for the evening, Canadian movie star and Green Lantern actor Mr. Ryan Reynolds was recently involved in a hit-and-run accident with a member of the paparazzi. CBC News is reporting that the hunky celebrity was just minding his own business and walking on foot in the underground parking garage of Vancouver's Shangri-La Hotel when he was suddenly struck from behind by a car being driven by a tabloid photographer. I suppose it gives a whole new meaning to the phrase strike a pose, sir. But all kidding aside, we're glad to hear that after suffering some mild injuries, the Deadpool actor is now recovering well and back to work on his new X-Men spin-off movie. When asked for a comment from a CBC reporter, Mr. Van Wilder humorously tweeted that he would respond only when the Canadian TV network brought back new episodes of The Beachcombers. Now, dear listeners, for those of you unfamiliar with this particular gem of late 70s low-budget Canadian TV, The Beach Cobras* is set in the small town of Gibson's British Columbia on the Sunshine Coast, and tells the tale of Greek immigrant Nick Adonidas and his partner Jesse Jim, who travel the waters on their old tugboat Persephone in search of wayward logs. Now the reason that I bring up this obscure little tidbit is that in the show, Nicodonidus' longtime time arch-nemesis was a cranky old feller that goes by the name of Relic. And there's been some speculation going around the superweb that, well, this Relic and your humble host here are actually one and the same person. But alas, I must inform you that it is not true. Although there is a connection between us. You see, the relic from the beachcombers was actually my great-great-great-grandson who passed away, sadly, in 1999. You know, it's like they say, a parent should never outlive their children. And thus it's quadruply tragic when... Great, great, great grandparents outlive their great, great, great grandchildren. Oh, such is the circle of life. Well, this brings another show to a close for this week, kids. It's about time I ventured outside and feed my pet polar bear, Fluffy, who always gets a little cranky when his dinner is late. Now hold on there Fluffy, Papa's coming Okay, until next time It's your old friend Relic Here, signing off Saying always remember To keep your feet on the Ground and your eyes On the stars
3: Okay, thanks for that Relic Uh, That was another pop culture roundup So now you're in the know about what has been going on in the world of pop culture so uh we're gonna leave it there for this week folks Uh, thanks to steven again um great great guest and we will be back uh next week with another show (coughs) on another topic or the same one we don't know yet you'll have to tune in to find out so until then have a good one see
0: you next week bye bye